Welcome to the Torah Teachers Roundtable, Apostolic Edition, with your hosts Rob Miller, Mark Patron, and yours truly, Mark Call. We hope you'll find this discussion entertaining, thought-provoking, and that above all, you'll be like the Bereans and search out the scriptures for yourself to see if these things be true. Good afternoon, folks. Welcome back. Happy Tuesday. Time for the drive time. Fr- I'm mean, sorry for the for the uh, Torah Teachers Roundtable Tanakh edition. And this is the show where we talk about those other books of the Bible and go into a bit more detail on some of the specifics. Of late, it's been the prophets, and we're now talking about one of the most uh, well known and important of all of them. Uh, certainly of the uh, the ones that uh, are in the book that gets called old and ignored. And uh, that would be the prophet Yeshayahu, or uh, a.k.a. Isaiah. And, of course, his name literally means the salvation of Yah, as opposed to Yahushua, which is kind of the same name in reverse. But in any case, we finished up through about uh, not quite the end of chapter 13 last week, and uh, we will uh, we'll pick it up and uh, talk about that one before we continue on into chapter 14 today. Uh, let me say first, uh, good afternoon, and welcome back. We're happy to have Ray Harrison with us, and it's good to see him as uh, hopefully a regular. So I think he's enjoying it, and I know that folks are enjoying him. So uh, uh, good afternoon, Ray. Welcome back. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you both? I'm doing okay. It's it's cloudy down here, but we uh, at least um, uh, we could do some moisture. Maybe we'll get some. We'll see. Getting dark here in Ohio. <laughs> I will bet. Any of you making uh, bets for any snow coming in a week ahead? Oh, I got five inches <laughs> last night. Oh my my! <laughs> Very good. You could use it, but we haven't gotten it yet. Did you get it in the front range? Uh, no, we're we're pretty dry at this point. Although I I think uh, according to my weather app today, I looked and it looks as if over the weekend uh, into Monday perhaps we will see snow. So I'll, I'll keep my fingers crossed. Okay, well that'll make all the difference. <laughs> Actually, probably not. But in any case, let's talk about Yeshayahu. We um, we got through, like I said, about verse eighteen or so. Uh, let me ask Mark: Is there any place you want to go before I continue to read on through the end of the chapter? Um, no, not at all. Go ahead and do that. Uh, you, we're going to start at verse nineteen, right? Okay. Yeah, we are. And I don't think I think Ray, you were um, you were pretty well caught up. Uh, you thought of anything else you need to add before we do that? No, I think probably the best thing to do is just read the uh, read to the end of thirteen, and then we can uh, go back and look through the chapter if we need to need to cover, you know, kind of cover anything uh, at the very end, and then we'll move on to 14 afterwards. Okay, so what we have here is a prophecy that sounds like something that, uh, uh, like a number of things, have not happened yet. It has to do with yo, um, young men who will be dashed to pieces, um, and they'll have no pity on the fruit of the womb by these uh, invaders that are going to come. Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, it says, and the beauty of the pride of the Chaldeans, will be as when Elohim overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. That doesn't sound so good for them. And then it says this. Now, this is one of the places where I'll say in verse 20, looks like we have not seen this yet because it says it will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled. 
from generation to generation, nor will the Arabian pitch their tents there, nor the shepherds make their sheepfolds there, but wild beasts of the desert, they'll lie there, and their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches will dwell there, wild goats will caper there, hyenas will howl in their citadels and jackals in their pleasant palaces. Her time is near to come, and her days will not be prolonged. So it uh, doesn't sound so good for Babylon, and uh, that, again, is part of the reason why I, uh, I guess my, my singular comment is I don't think we've seen this happen yet. Um, let's go to you, MP, this time first. All right, good deal. Um, here's Treasury Scripture Knowledge on verse 19. Uh, they kind of like this. Babylon, whose destruction and utter ruin are here predicted, was situated in the midst of a large plain having a very deep and fruitful soil on the Euphrates River, about 252 miles southeast of Palmyra, and the same distance northwest of Susa and the Persian Gulf, 44 degrees, 20 minutes east. Anyway, according to Herodotus, it formed the a, a perfect square, each side of which was 120 stadia, and uh, consequently, the circumference was 480 stadia, or 60 miles, 15 miles on a side, is what they were talking about there, uh, enclosed in a wall 200 cubits, 300 feet high, and 50, 150, um, and 50 wide, okay, 50 uh, cubits, which is 100, I'm sorry, what did I, what did I do, yeah, 150 wide on the top of which were small watchtowers on, uh, on one story high, leaving the space between them, through which a chariot and four horses might pass and turn. On each side were 25 gates of solid brass, from, from each of which proceeded a street 150 feet broad, making, it, uh, take, making in all 50 streets which crossing each other at right angles intersected the city uh, into 676 squares. Why they're giving me all this detail, I don't know, but uh, there's got to be some reason for it. Extending four stadia and a half on each side, along which stood the houses, uh, all built three or four stories high and highly decorated streets uh, uh, towards the street. The uh, interior of these squares... Uh, being used as gardens, pleasure grounds, etc., its principal ornaments were the Temple of Belus, having a high uh, tower, eight stories, okay, high, each a base, upon a base, rather, of a quarter of a mile square, a most magnificent palace, and the, and the famous hanging gardens, or artificial mountains, raised upon arches and planted with large and beautiful trees. Cyrus, Koresh, um, took it by diverting the waters of the Euphrates, which ran through the midst, and entering by the channel, and the river being never restored to its proper course, overflowed to the whole country, and made it a morass, as it were. Uh, Darius Hystaspes, uh, that's an interesting name, uh, afterwards depopulated the place, lowered the walls and demolished the gates. Xerxes destroyed the temples and building of Seleucia nearly exhausted it of its inhabitants. The king of the Parthians carried a number of them into slavery and destroyed the most beautiful parts 
so that modern travelers, and, and TSK was written in the 1700s, uh, <laughs> and modern travelers uh, describe it as a mass of shapeless ruins, the habitation of wild beasts. And you can see all of, all of this stuff actually uh, in the scriptures in Isaiah 14, 4, and, 4 through 6, and 12 through 15, Jeremiah 51, verse 41, and Daniel 2, 37, 38, and 430. Babylon was a huge, huge with a capital U, uh, especially in its day and location in the middle of the Middle Eastern desert, about 300 miles east and latitudinally perhaps 30 miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, in the neighborhood of present-day Al-Hilal. Uh, so the year-round temperatures would be roughly equal. Though Jerusalem's, affected by its near proximity to the Mediterranean Sea, would likely be somewhat rainier and cooler. When Yah was finished with Babylon, it would be largely finished. I mean, literally finished. Uh, verse 20 says that it will remain uninhabited as our... Uh, Deceased former TTRT co-host Rob Miller would say, "Forever." <laughs> now, I don't know if Bedouins have been camped, uh, have never camped in the site, but there is no established population center there today. Though the aforementioned Al Hila Al is in the neighborhood, I don't know how likely it is for there to be absolutely no trace of a city the size of Babylon. Even after more than three thousand years of disuse or abandonment, okay, wait a the second. Utter destruction. Such a site might. Uh, just a second. I'll get. I'll give it to you in a second. The utter destruction of such a site might influence locals to steer clear of it. Anyway, go ahead. Okay. No, I just want to make clear because I, I had said will never be inhabited, and um, and and indicated that that doesn't look like it's being fulfilled. But I think what you're trying to say is that you disagree that uh, the area. And I guess the question is, the, if if we're talking about specifically a single city that the walls have been destroyed, uh, perhaps that's true. So I could stand corrected. I wouldn't want to say that I'm wrong because uh, MP <clears throat> would would not be able to pronounce the word. But I would uh, certainly admit that um, maybe there is a difference of opinion whether or not. Uh, this verse has or has not yet been fulfilled. Um, I, I'm also one of those that will suggest that uh, cycles in history and in prophecy repeat. So as Mark Twain likes to say, history doesn't repeat exactly, but it rhymes. I wouldn't be surprised that there are elements of this, even if we uh, submit that uh, maybe it has been destroyed and will never be inhabited, that there might not be another fulfillment out there still waiting. So uh, anyway, there you go. Uh, go ahead and finish up, though. That's that's all I wanted to make sure was was clear. Uh, you are on the page oh, yeah. that it says verse 20 has been fulfilled, right? Or are you? I am, the, I am on the page that it has been partially fulfilled, not necessarily completely. Okay. Okay, but I mean, every every prophecy has a has a relatively uh, a, a relatively admit, uh, um, immediate uh, fulfillment that isn't quite full. Okay, and then later on, you get you get uh, more fulfillments of of everything that's there. That, that's uh, and and Ray has something to say. What you what you got, Ray? Um, my only point with this, and and I. I I would agree that I think that in uh, certainly in principle the the ancient city was uh, completely destroyed or and all that and for well millennia was not really truly inhabited. 
Um, I, I would just uh, remind you all uh, and listeners as well that uh, the uh, citizens of Iraq, uh, beginning uh, actually in the 1800s and then uh, through, uh, I think it began in about 1921 or so, when the uh, the the current uh, well, what was the Kingdom of Iraq under British administration? They began to look at the ancient uh, city and began to look at ways to uh, uh, to go out and do digs and restore it and this sort of thing. And I think if you all will recall that one of the main pieces of uh, Saddam Hussein was the restoration of this. Of course, this is. Every megalomaniac wants to, uh, you know, uh, wants to rebuild things. Of course, we knew what Hitler wanted to do. We knew that Mussolini wanted to restore uh, Rome to its former glory and and all this sort of thing. And I think that that there were uh, Saddam Hussein was uh, moving forward at a fairly brisk clip as to trying to get some of this uh, done before he was undone. Uh, and so. Again, I, um, I I think the 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 current area right now that was the site of ancient Babylon, if I'm not mistaken, is uh, now uh, been declared a World Heritage Site by those uh, great lovers of justice, UNESCO. Um, <laughs> yeah. And um, a- any anyway, I, I I don't know that it will ever be rebuilt for a final shellacking. Or not, uh, but uh, it's it, it, it's interesting. Certainly, the I think the the Iraqis have uh, uh, that this is something that they, that they would they would like to see done. Uh, Absolutely, you know. So I I think uh, a lot of of course a lot of what we're reading about in chapter thirteen has to do with prototypical day of the Lord stuff, prototypical follow Babylon stuff. So uh, certainly there was a near fulfillment, a historical fulfillment. There'll be an eschatological fulfillment, I believe, in the end times. But I think also what is behind that is the uh, the, the arrogance and the uh, uh, just the hubris and and all that goes into it. And I think that goes back to the days of the Tower of Babel, of of humanity wanting to create something so marvelous that they can say, boy, this, this rivals anything God can do. And, and I think that spirit is certainly still alive. Don't know if it will happen in that geographical area or not. So that, that's my comment on that one anyway. Well, that was what uh, Saddam was after. And, uh, Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, let me move on. Verse uh, 21. Sure. Uh, Don't say that the wild beasts would lie there. Perhaps use the remaining structures as shelter against the uh, wind-driven sands. The, the word KJV translates as wild beasts of the desert is H6728, Yi'atzei, a desert dweller, from the Hebrew 6723, Tzia, which is an unused root meaning to patch aridity concretely a desert, is what they're, mm. what they're saying. So the the Hebrew uses two words that the KGB translates as the single word, owls. The two words are H1323, bat, daughter, and H3284, uh, yaana, which is ostrich. 
So daughter ostrich is translated owls. Think about that. <laughs> they, they weren't real good, real good about uh, staying uh, to the actual uh, original languages. Anyway, an owl is smaller than an ostrich, but neither bird resembles the other beyond wings, feathers, and bird claws. You know, I don't know. Maybe one has to be exceptionally wise to put that together properly, or maybe the KGB translator had the same trouble I'm having. The Hebrew word that is translated ostrich is ya'an, which is from the Hebrew 3282, ya'an, very much the, the same. Ya'en, rather, from the Hebrew ya'an, which means to pay attention, which may be the reason we see owls about. They are reportedly wise, and the wise always pay attention to their surroundings. Like an owl, with his head literally on a swivel, that turns 330 degrees left to right. But wait, <laughs> there's more. There are satyrs dancing here as well. Satyr is from the H Hebrew 8163 Sha'ir, which means a hairy he-goat. So there's your goats, okay? My thinking is that nothing but desert creatures hang around the place. There were probably not a lot of small animals around to draw predators. This is now in our day, quite literally, the middle of nowhere. There might even be a family of satyrs there that no one has ever actually seen. I'm just kidding on that. Now, the KJV in uh, verses 21 and 22 says that there are wild beasts of the desert in 21 and wild beasts of the islands in 22. Makes one wonder if they've seen Gilligan and the Skipper or uh, Stone's <laughs> Tanakh has, has this on verse 22. Um, cats will howl in their mansions, the jackals in their palaces of delight. Her time is soon to come. Her days will not long endure. I have to think, and I'll finish with this. I have to think that her days will not long endure because Yah is about to judge them and they will receive the just recompense of their actions from when Yah is finished with her, she shall likely be finished. To mimic our friend Rob Miller, forever. <laughs> okay, that's what I got for the rest of this. Uh, I thought maybe I can ask you a question. I, I, I'm searching here online as you're as you're speaking, uh, and I can't find the name of the owl deity that especially the Bohemian Grove people. Oh, it was uh, considered utilized. to be it's Lilith. Yeah. It's Lilith, and it was it was said by some of the rabbinics to be the first wife of Adam, and uh, they get that from uh, from that that translation ah. where that word is translated as screech owl, or or in some cases just they leave it as a they make it a proper noun. Yeah, you're breaking up, Mark. I'm having trouble hearing you. You said Lilith. Correct. Is, uh, I, I'm not recalling that name in association with it. I've been I've been looking through it. I I thought it started with a W. But but my my memory is not. Uh, yeah, Lilith is a, is a name that comes out of out of um, abject paganism. Yes, and, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it, oh, yeah, it, it's, it's been there. Dark. That's no that's doubt. true of a lot of these things. Yes. Uh, boy, I'm looking and I can't. I just can't find it. But anyway, there. there I think I think probably there is, and I'm guessing only at this that there's probably. Uh, since there are references made to owls and Vedic literature and other stuff like that, I suspect that this was probably 
a, a reference to a pagan deity. I don't know what ostriches have to do uh, with much of anything aside from laying big eggs, but uh, okay. that's, that's all I know on that subject. Well, they lay great big eggs. That is true. Well, yes, I understand it's what the equivalent of three dozen hen's eggs, something like that. Crazy. <laughs> wow. Well, it's a, it's a much larger bird. Anyway, we can uh, we can move on if you'd like to oh. uh, chapter fourteen. Yeah, let's go ahead and read if we're finished there. So, um, um, I, uh, well, I, I guess the the only last thing I would I would say. Is the idea here with the destruction of it is that that the message that comes across is when God is done with this, that there will be utter abandonment and and it, it's just driven home again and again and again that that when when God is done with Babylon, it's 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 not it's not going to get up for another round. That would seem to be, yeah, that, someone, regardless someone of whether we believe it's already happened the, or in not. In the very end of days. Yep. Okay. Are we ready then? Okay. Yep. For okay. Yahuwah will have mercy on Yaakov and will still choose Israel. Now, right off the top, I'm going to say this is one of a number of places. I've never actually gone and counted them up because sometimes they're consecutive verses. But there are uh, literally dozens, if not uh, well over a 100 places in Scripture, where uh, Yaakov kind of stands alone, singularly, as the one fellow who um, is renamed by the Creator. Of course, his name is Jacob or Yaakov. Then he is told, no, you'll be called Israel from here on out. But... And it turns out that uh, over and over again, not only is he still called Yaakov, and the, uh, uh, as I like to point out frequently, the, um, the reasons seem pretty clear from the context in Scripture, but also it's uh, sometimes even in the same verse. Now, here is one of those examples, and it's fascinating to see how the usages appear in these first couple verses. So, uh, Yahuwah will have mercy on Jacob or Yaakov and will still choose Israel. And will settle them, plural, so it's clearly talking about the descendants of, I guess, both, whether you want to say it's the spiritual and or the physical, but um, regardless, both of them will be settled in their own land. The strangers will be joined with them, Paul talks about being grafted in, and they will cling to the house of Jacob. Then it says people will take them and bring them to their place, and the house of, this time, Israel, will possess them for servants and maids in the land of Yahuwah. Now, that one's interesting, too. Notice it is the house of Israel that is going to possess these other people for manservants and maidservants in the land of Yahuwah. They will take them captive, whose captives they were, and rule over their oppressors. So uh, clearly there's a turnabout um and uh, uh, measure for measure, I guess, is one of the Hebrew expressions people will see. Uh, as as yes. will be done, right? So you, yep. as you reap, uh, as you sow, so you will reap, and so forth. So let's pause there. Uh, Ray, we'll go to you this time first, and then we'll pick it up, because it's going to change gears just a bit. Sure. Uh, uh, interestingly, uh, and I agree with you, it's, it's oftentimes interesting to see Yaakov uh, and, and Israel in, this, in the same the same sentence used, uh, reminding us of two different contexts. I think I could be wrong, but this is my take on it. That we have the the human uh, the human side of of Jacob and the 
And, uh, and of course, as he has wrestled with God, he, uh, uh, and overcomes his human, humanly nature, becomes then the prince of God. Uh, that, that I think it's oftentimes put this way that, you know, you were this way, but, but now we're speaking to the, to the, the more learned half, the better half, the, the, and that sort of thing. I think it also interesting, and I know we're hard up on a break here, but we've seen in the past where, Israel has vanquished people who have been who have been their lords, and, the, and he allows them to uh, those people to be captives. Okay, so we are at the break. You're right, right back. Here for Sometimes in my tears I drown, but I never let it get me down. So when negativity surrounds, I know something. Back, folks. This is the Torquilla Roundtable Tanakh edition. We're talking about chapter 14 now of the book of Isaiah or Yeshayahu. And when we went to break, uh, we interrupted Ray, so let me uh, uh, let him finish up. We'll go right back and then we'll continue on. So um, pick it up if you can remember right where about you left, Ray. Uh, you bet. Thank you, Mark. Uh, just my, the point that I was making that uh, historically we've seen in the past when uh, uh, Israel has been held captive, I'm thinking specifically of the Philistines, that when that was overturned, then uh, the, then the Lord made the Philistines then their servants. And we see this, I think, happen in a number of different places. And again, as we're looking through this section of Isaiah, we're seeing things uh, that are prophesied to happen in the near future and also in the far future. And so as we move into 14, uh, we spent all of 13 uh, talking about the punishments that were going to be leveled against Babylon and uh, and all of that. In 14, we begin to get a look uh, at the other uh, part of that, and that the, the, that, uh, the Lord is going to provide a return for his people, uh, and that uh, they should not lose hope, and that the better days are coming. And so what's happening here, I think, in these first couple of verses is sort of a promise of an earnest payment that's going to be coming for them. Um, and that ultimately, when we get to the the final uh, version of this event and all that, that those that have been Israel's enemies, if there are any of them still uh, uh, breathing air, that they will, at that point in time, they will, in fact, become servants of the land. But I think it's going to be 
one of these things that, that the oh the, the as as were the uh, the strangers and the servants in in the mixed multitude that left Egypt they they gladly became part of the house of Israel they gladly joined they 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 were converted <laughs> along the way and uh, and were willing to take a servant's place within that community of grace so anyway that that's kind of how i see this uh, one last thing, though, also in Deuteronomy 4.30, it says, when you are in the tribulation and all these things come upon you, in the latter days, you will return to Yehovah, your God, and obey his voice. Amen. So we, we know, yeah, we, we, this has been, this has been set in stone from well, well, well before, uh, the days of, of this prophet. So. Okay. With that, I return it to you. Very good. MP? I'm ready to move on. Oh, okay. I'm ready to jump uh, that on actually surprises me, Mark. I'm not sure what to say. So, uh, okay. Uh, let's continue then. It shall come to pass, says verse 3, in the day that Yahuwah gives you rest from your sorrow and from oh. your fear and from the hard bondage in which you were made to serve, that you'll take up this proverb against the king of Babylon, and say the following. Here we go. Now, some of this is also going to fall into the category of things we've heard before, a relatively famous verse. It's not quite as famous as some of the ones we've been talking about the last few weeks, but uh, starting to get up there. How the oppressor has ceased. The golden city ceased. Yahuwah has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. He who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he who ruled the nations in anger is persecuted, and no one hinders. The the whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. Indeed, the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were cut down, no woodsman has come up against us. And uh, I'll read um, one more verse and we'll pause. This is a, uh, a relatively long uh, quotation that they're going to say. But it says, Hell, in the English that I'm looking at here, has, uh, from beneath, is excited about you, to meet you at your coming. Now, Hell is, of course, a, uh, a relatively, um, well, English modernized translation. The word that's in the original scripture there is Sheol, and Sheol is sometimes rendered as Hell. Oftentimes, though, it's just the grave or death. So, um, death or Sheol. But that's the uh, the word that's used in the Hebrew there. Uh, from beneath is excited about you, to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth. It's raised up from their thrones, all the kings of the nations. And we'll pause there. So uh, let's see. Uh, let's go to you, Mark. All right. Thank you. Uh, I hadn't had a chance to comment on verses 1 and 2 yet, so I'm going to go ahead and do that. <laughs> see, you uh, sucker me, and I asked you, and you said no. Go ahead. Numbers. But Okay. <laughs> okay. okay, so this is what Stone Sinach had to say about verses 1 and 2. The first part of this verse refers, refers to the great kindness that Elohim will cause Koresh, the Persian, the conqueror of Babylonia, to show the Jews. The prophet then goes on to speak in Messianic, uh, uh, rather, of the Messianic era, that according to Rashi and Radak. Now, Azamra has this on verses, verse 1. Um, Verse 1, for Hashem will have mercy on Yaakov. The fall of Babylon, about which most of the present chapter continues to prophesy, would itself be salvation for Israel because Koresh, Cyrus of Persia, who succeeded Darius the Mede one year later, 
began his reign by permitting the exiles from Yehuda to return to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel. And they started to build the temple. And he will yet choose Israel and set them in their land. Uh, this refers to a future redemption, which will be complete. Now, the opening word of this chapter is for, which kind of demands that we look at the end of the last chapter to be sure that we're on the same page that Yah is. The last paragraph, I think, begins in a marked paraphrase of 1317 to the end of the chapter. And here's what I got about that. This would be modern-day Georgia, uh, northeastern Turkey, Syria, northwestern Iran, and possibly northern Iraq. And what we are, what are we seeing in that neighborhood as we speculate? A lot of animosity against present-day Israel because the police team, the Palestinians, started a war by invading Israel and raping, beheading, and murdering 1,400 Israeli citizens on 7 October 2023 and continuing to rape and pillage as they can up to now. We're, where uh, I and Netanyahu's shoes, were I in Netanyahu's shoes, I should say, I would be very tempted to get all the police team into Gaza and annihilate them all, just level it, bulldoze it flat, and then start giving the victims of 7 October 2023 free land. But I'm a hot-headed Sicilian. And if Babylon, Assyria, descendants, want a piece of it, let them come. Yah is on Israel's side of this modern Gog-Umagog invasion of Yah's land. And it is getting to be that time, being at or very near the end of the sixth millennium of this earth's existence, assuming that the biblical narratives began in the neighborhood of 4000 BCE. Now, I could be wrong, but I seriously doubt that I am. If my thinking about the outcome of this Gog-Umagog-Israel fight is anywhere close to correct, the nation Israel will open its border to any who will guarantee their allegiance to Israel, and Yah will also accept them into Bnei Israel. The millennium that will end with Yah Yeshua on his throne in Jerusalem will begin in my not-so-humble opinion sometime very soon. Now, verse 2 has the people of Israel taking in the police team who sincerely offer themselves to Yah as citizens of Israel and servants of Yah. Then Stones adds this on verse 2. Stones Tanakh. They say, non-Jews will volunteer to become servants in the land of Israel, according to Ibn Ezra. Verse 2 does not say how Israel will treat the strangers, but I assume that they will take them in, having pity on and acting magnanimously toward them, people who had attempted to murder them in their sleep on 7 October 23. And I also think that Yah will move the police team to serve Israel and that Israel will treat them well and eventually accept them as neighbors and brothers in Yah, probably after watching them for a while, just in case. Again, I could be wrong, but I doubt it. So I got for verses 1 and 2, if you'd like to jump on that, and I'll come back for 3 through 5 in a few, little bit. All right. Well, uh, we've been there. I, I, Ray hasn't, all right? You want to comment on anything uh, that we've read ahead to, Ray? 
Um, go ahead and let Mark uh, Mark go on with his commentary for that. Um, I, I, I do have a couple of things to add, but uh, let him keep rolling with what he's doing. All right. Well, then let me get – I'll take through verse 5, uh, 3 through 5. Um, we've read it already. Esordex has a heading for verses 3 to 23, and that heading is Israel – Israel's remnant taunts Babylon. And the KJV does seem to insinuate that. Stones to Knock has this comment on verse 2. No Jews will volunteer to become servants in the land of Israel, Ibn Ezra. The strangers will see the difference between Babylonian captivity and being free in Israel as better than even their lives and freedom in their own land. There was no land on earth that allowed men such liberty as Israel, and I would assume that at least the generation of strangers that inhabited Israel at this time has it so good as to not want to return to their own homelands. That may have changed in subsequent generations uh, who could not fathom what it had been like, but at least for this one, I suspect there was harmony between the natives and the strangers in Israel. Uh, Azamra has this on verses 3 and 4, and verse 17, and I'll, I'll hit both of those. And it came to pass, on the day when Hashem will give you rest, it shall come to pass, on the day when Hashem will give you give you rest, and you shall uh, take up his proverb against the king of Babylon. That's verses 3 and 4. And in verse 17, Nebuchadnezzar was proverbially... Uh, or proverbial, rather, for his cruelty. Anyone who entered his prison was never released to go back home. Those who had lived under Nebuchadnezzar's tyranny, as well as those who had had it worse before their capture and enslavement in Babylon, must have sighed in relief at their change of station, from prison or slave to freedom in Yah's land. It may have been hard to fathom just how good it was to be free. We in the United States of America really can't put a face on this. We are spoiled with liberty. We don't know exactly how grateful we should be to live in the United States, even with the unconstitutional restrictions we have to endure until we get a chance to argue a case before the U.S. Supreme Court. I almost did this once. I made an argument before the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, the local county judge in Ohio dismissed the case when I challenged his jurisdiction and showed him how and why he didn't have any jurisdiction in my case before him. I think the judge enjoyed our banter and his prosecutor got a reprimand in my presence for his disdain of me. That was so much fun. Uh, and if you'd like to hear the, the uh, particulars about that, I'd be happy to do that, but later. In verse 4, the word translated proverb is the Hebrew word 49.12, mashal, and it means to determine role or character, to rule by command, being completely in charge, tying events together. All, all of that st falls into this word mashal. Every one of those definitions fit my story, by the way. <laughs> verse 4 ends with, how has the oppressor come to an end, the arrogance been added? Verse 5, Yah answers, Yah has broken the staff of the wicked, the rod of the rulers. Nebuchadnezzar was taken down by the hand of Yah 
through the hands of men. And that's what happens in verses 1 to 5. And um, ready to move on. Okay. Ray? Uh, just just one comment here. Uh, and I'm not certain which English versions you're both reading from. I'm reading from the English Standard, which is my preferred English uh, Bible. But uh, I generally uh, go from the King James. Yeah, I, and and uh, it, it's interesting here. Uh, it uh, it uh, it says uh, you uh, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon, and and all that. And then the way that mine is is uh, laid out, yeah. And the way that it reads, I checked the, my Hebrew Bible, and typically songs in the Bible uh, are delineated in in uh, in on an actual scroll. By being formatted differently from the from the regular prose, prosaic text, so they they really stand out. Uh, interestingly, here at fourteen four, on down to I think it's about verse twenty one or so, when this song, if you will, or or mashal is is finished, that it it reads along just like text. So I I'm not sure that uh, that uh, that it's actually a song, but I just offer that point there that there's that this is a a, a, a poetic utterance about the king of Babylon it, it it changes from well here are the facts of the matter too and then we launch into this little soliloquy about what goes on and the language changes somewhat a little bit flowery uh, uh, all of this uh, there's all kinds of stuff uh, uh, you know, it, it speaks about the, the cypresses and the, the cedars of Lebanon and all that. And I, I guess the, the point being made there, I'm only guessing, is that the king of Babylon doesn't isn't able to grow the cedars of Lebanon. Only Yah can grow the cedars of Lebanon. So how dare you cut them down? And, of course, uh, we remember the king of Assyria had boasted about how he was going to chop every tree in Lebanon down and, and all that, that sort of thing. So... That, that's my comment there. Ah, okay. The uh, the etymological dictionary of biblical Hebrew. This is this, they really get they're really tough. Here. They say uh, that mashal uh, means it literally means to determine the role or character, or to rule by command, depending on how it gets. It can get vowel pointed differently. Mashal uh-huh, sure. is the Hebrew root. Okay, and that's all that that's all that this book does. It gives you Hebrew meanings, okay? Etymological Dictionary of Biblical Hebrew. I really like it. Anyway, um, and, and that's the idea there. I'm, I'm relatively certain. So... You bet. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. are we ready to move on then, again? Um, if, if we could begin uh, with nine again, and then once when you pause, uh, Mark... Uh, uh, I, I have a, a couple of uh, comments about this this notion when we begin to talk about Sheol in verses, oh, about 9 through, I don't know, 12 or whatever it is. Uh, maybe we can go back and, and compare a couple of ideas. There's there's a whole lot of stuff wrapped up in people's idea of, of 
What is Sheol? Yeah, exactly. That was kind of the point I thought was interesting as well here. So it's why I mentioned that word that's rendered as hell in verse 9 is is really Sheol. And for the most part, you really only find uh, two words that, that we see associated with the, you know, the Catholic-inspired vision of hell. One is Sheol. The other is Gehenna. And um, as I understand from a mutual friend, the first place I heard this years ago, that that's kind of like the name for the trash pit outside of town. So um, and at least the metaphor is concerned. So, I'll I'll read 9 again, we'll go through 11, and then we'll pause there. And and it's interesting to me, sometimes the King James translators leave the word Sheol in, and other times they put hell in place. So it says, hell from beneath is excited about you, or Sheol, better, from beneath is excited about you. Demetrius, you're coming, it stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth. It's raised up from their thrones, all the kings of the Goyim, the nations. They shall all speak and say to you, have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to, here it is, the word Sheol, they kept it this time. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, or the grave, and the sound of your stringed instruments, the maggot, is spread under you, and the worms cover you. So it sounds like a kind of an in-between place to be. Uh, all right, Ray, let's go to you on this one. Uh, okay, we, we have just a very few moments uh, before the break, but just uh, I'll kind of lay the groundwork, and then maybe when we come back, we can uh, sort of chew through this at, at length. I'm sure MP's got some good material for us. Uh, my English standard uh, hits this also with Sheol twice. Well, good for them. But uh, it's, it's very, very interesting that, uh, as you alluded to the Roman Catholic Bible, and I know many of the folks out there wandering around have this, this idea of, of what we now call hell. It is something that really the, the, uh, the Catholic Church in 1275 at the Council of Lyon uh, began to codify this notion of what is purgatory. And later, uh, only 25 years later, uh, Dante Alighieri, famous uh, Italian, we all know about, we get uh, his famous book, uh, The Inferno, which talks about in many, many ways and, and goes through the nine different circles of hell and this and that and what's involved in each. We could We could spend a whole hour on that whole book going through it. Uh, but uh, so much of, of where modern day culture comes from, our ideas uh, are, 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 are foisted on us by this notion of, well, what, what does the Catholic Church say? They're entitled to their opinion. I don't, I don't buy what, what they're saying, but, uh, but anyway, they're certainly entitled to it. Uh, certainly culturally. Dante and hell and this and that, and there are certain levels and some sins are worse than others and so on and so forth and all this, this, this kind of stuff, um, is, is something that I, I think here it, it would beg, uh, I think we need to take some time and say, okay, so let's, let's talk about this a few minutes. What are these notions? Uh, I think you all have some, some good ideas there. And, and what do you think actually Yeshiahu is talking about when he's talking about Sheol or the grave or these sorts of uh, things. I, I found it fascinating here. Oh, it talked about the dead, but he, it was in mine. Let me find the verse here. I apologize. Uh, oh, it, it was the shadow, the shadowy ones. Did I get that right? Uh, st- uh, da, 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 whole worth this. 
Who knows what evil lurks in the mm. hearts of men? The shadow do? That one or something slightly different? The shadow. The sh- no, it wasn't the shadow do. But uh, uh, anyway, I, why can't I find that? Uh, stuck. Boy, this happens to me whenever I do it. But anyway, in, in other words, the, the, when the, the king of uh, Babylon gets there, the, 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 the people that are there, Quote are saying, are, are you like us now? Are you this and that? There's this kind of shadowy notion of, of what they are. And it might be interesting for us to kick around the idea of, so what is the Hebrew idea of where, where, where do souls go after, yeah. after what is Shul? What is Gehenna? Gehenna is certainly a different meaning. And the rabbinics have, have kind of crafted their own meaning for what that is and, and all of that as well. But, might be worth a, a conversation here on the other side of the uh, the other side of the break. All right. Well, you you finished about fifteen seconds early. You want to add anything else, or should we just uh, uh, tread water till we get the music coming up? We'll we'll definitely talk about it some more. We'll, we'll we'll wait for that music. It normally grabs us. Yeah, I'm I'm guessing about ten seconds if the clock is accurate. Oh, it's close. All right, we're at the music. We're at the break. Top of the hour. So we'll be right back. <laughs> Don't take me soon, cause I am here for a reason Sometimes in my tears I drown, but I never let it get me down So when negativity surrounds, I know someday Sometimes I under the moon. Welcome to the Torah Teachers Roundtable, Apostolic Edition, with your hosts Rob Miller, Mark Patron, and yours truly, Mark Call. We hope you'll find this discussion entertaining, thought-provoking, and that above all, you'll be like the Bereans and search out the scriptures for yourself to see if these things be true. I know All right, we are back, folks. This is the second hour of the Tor Teachers Roundtable to Knock Edition. We're talking about the book of Isaiah, chapter 14. And uh, as we went to break, Ray was laying out uh, an interesting, I hope, uh, discussion that we'll proceed with now concerning this idea of hell or sheol or uh, other names that we hear in English. Um, but... Um, uh, you know, down under and the bad place and all that kind of jazz, but essentially just two Hebrew words. And uh, with that, Ray, I think uh, since you uh, took us to the break so uh, so nicely, let's go back to you and let you kind of take us where you'd like on this side. Uh, Mark, actually, what I'm going to do at this point is I think uh, Mark Patron has uh, some commentary that, that he wanted to make between uh, the verses 6 and 9. And when he's done, right. then then I'll pick it back up at 9 and uh, I've got a quote from a book to read to kind of kind of roll the grenade into the room, and then we can go from there. <laughs> How's that sound? That sounds good. Okay. And you already mentioned Dante, so there's uh, there's a couple with that. <laughs> All right. And let me uh, let me jump on verses six through nine. Um, Nebuchadnezzar 
had uh, conquered and oppressed so many other civilizations that it would be hard to tell just who was who, except that this prophecy is addressed to Yehuda. Yah explains, He who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he that ruled the nations in anger, his per is persecuted, and none hindereth. The next few verses tell Yehuda just what's ahead for Nebuchadnezzar. I don't think Neb is going to be paying attention to what's happening in what was his kingdom. Basically, Nebuchadnezzar had uh, got tired of conquest and just sat back to enjoy all the privilege that he'd acquired by his lack of Ruth. You know, no ruthlessness. Uh, you know, <laughs> ruthlessness. And that was uh, that very ruthlessness was the catalyst for those that he'd conquered and subjugated into Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. What's the old saying? What goes around comes around? Unfortunately, the pain and suffering was pretty severe, but Nebuchadnezzar never suffered as much as his conquered subjects, and native subjects too, suffered. Azamra has a comment. Nebuchadnezzar was proverbially uh, proverbial rather for his cruelty. Anyone who entered his prison was never released to go back home. That according to verse 17 and uh, their commentary on verse 17. And when that became known to the prisoners, they may have just despaired and taken their own lives. Nebuchadnezzar would thin and possibly say aloud uh, and possibly say aloud uh, think and possibly say aloud, one less mouth to feed, cut the prisoners' rations. It's the kind of guy he was. In verse 8, we get to see just how little Ruth Nebuchadnezzar had. He was ruthless, okay? Uh, <laughs> here's a sonra. But now his ignominious end would make him a byword for God's retribution against the proud. With his demise, feeling of jo feelings of joy and relief would come to all the nations, in verse 8. The guy whose woodsman cut down one nation, a forest, after another, had croaked, and there was a good cause to rejoice, at least until the next egomaniacal conqueror comes around. Now, Zamra has this to say on the, as an overview for verses 9 through 17. It's very short. It says, Hell itself would shudder and tremble with the arrival of Nebuchadnezzar. Isaiah's depiction of all the amazed shadows in hell, the souls of the dead kings and mighty of history, as they wander over the fall, uh, wonder rather over the fall of mighty Nebuchadnezzar opens a thin chink for us into the netherworld, where the souls of the wicked seem to be imprisoned in a never ending time warp. Shades of Star Trek, eh? Even <laughs> Orthodox rabbis must have television. I mean, it must be. Anyway, verse 9 says that hell itself snapped to attention when Nebuchadnezzar breached its gates, which was that Hasatan himself was worried about his kingdom with this guy around. Nebuchadnezzar would, could rally the troops by rallying all the dead generals and their troops to him for an assault on Hell's throne <laughs> to give Hasatan a run for his money. The way verse 9 is translated, KJV, 
kind of downplays the already present conquerors whose troops seem to rally on Nebuchadnezzar. And keeping their own positions in their collective minds, the already present generals rise to greet Nebuchadnezzar. Hasatan has been, has, uh, may have been just a bit worried. All the troops and their generals, junior officers, rose to acknowledge Nebuchadnezzar. King James Version's H6220 is Atad, from the Hebrew 6257, Atad, okay, to prepare to thoroughly to make fit. You understand just how formidable Neb had to be to concern Hasatan in his own domain? Okay, Hasatan may be thinking that he'd created his own downfall by grooming Nebuchadnezzar so darn well. Anyway, that's what I got through verse 9, if you'd like to uh, jump all over it. Go for it. Okay, now we've continued on, so um, unless, unless um, you have anything else to add, we're, we're ready to talk about hell, Mark. Are you ready? I, <laughs> I, if if we can, yeah, I'll pick it up in verse nine where uh, where Mark left off, and and that's uh, that that's interesting in light of what I'm going to do here. Usually, I don't uh, quote from books, but I'm going to do a quote this time. Uh, this is from Alec Motier's book. That's M O T Y E R, Prophecy of Isaiah. Uh, quite a good book. I would recommend it to any of our listeners. You can get it at the usual places. Uh, I want to read just a couple of paragraphs that will kind of set uh, set the stage for us. And, uh, again, these are his thoughts, not necessarily all. I don't agree 100%, but uh, so these are his thoughts. Uh, he's speaking about verses 9 through 15 and says, This poem is an imaginative visit to Sheol, though neither the architect's drawing of the whole world to come, nor the sociologist's report. A poem can be expected to draw out principles and focus issues. In this way, it expresses some central Old Testament truths about the dead. First, the dead are alive, in quotation marks, in Sheol. In the Bible, death, in quotation marks, is never the quotation termination but a change of place or a change of continuity uh, or uh, uh, for the person and personal identity. Uh, Sheol is the, quote, place where all the dead uh, continue. And he refers to Job 3:11 through 19, also Psalms 49, 9. Secondly, in Sheol, there is a personal continuity and mutual recognitions. The king is recognized as he arrives in verse 10. Those already there rise from their, quote, thrones, not because there are thrones in Sheol, but to show that they are the same people as they were on earth. That's very similar to what Mark was uh, saying. In the same way, Abraham was, quote, gathered to his people in Genesis 25, 8, and David looked forward to joining his infant son, in 2 Samuel 12:23 thirdly sheol is a place of weakness with loss not enhancement of earthly powers the dead are are shades or shadowy ones and that was what i was trying to find uh that's in verse 9 that's a uh, repaim it's uh and uh, that's uh, hebrew 74:96 the dead or the spirits of the departed 
And the English Standard uh, correctly translates this, and it rouses the shades of the great to greet you. I'll finish my quote. Uh, who describe themselves as having become weak. So that kind of paints at least his picture of what he envisions this this place Sheol to be. So I'll, I'll leave that for you all to to jump in and and go from there. Okay. Um, well, let me let let's just you start, Mark, if you'd like. Okay. Uh, yeah, Sheol was the place for uh, the dead. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> whether whether righteous or unrighteous, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, that, and you know, it's, it's it's a holding place for when uh, the final judgment comes on all of us, and, and whether they're actually actually uh, conscious of of being in the place, I don't know. Okay, I I seriously doubt, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't I don't know that much about the uh, the uh, the theology of Sheol. Well, okay. Yeah, it's interesting. Go ahead, Mark. And yeah, I'll, let me I'll just weigh in briefly. I'll, I'll note that, uh, and Ray's already mentioned this. I kind of do too. I, I think a lot of the things that uh, we as Americans have picked up, and that would be true of Europeans as well, where there was this Catholic background. Purgatory, of course, is, as far as I can tell, just an entirely made-up thing, like a holding zone where uh, uh, some uh, Catholic guy with a funny Agreed. hat decides whether or not you go up or down. So there are a lot of things, in other words, and I, I tend to speak with some disdain simply because I don't believe they're scriptural. On the other hand, there are some references that are scriptural, as we mentioned, this idea of both Sheol, the grave or death, and uh, Gehenna, which is we haven't talked about yet, but uh, uh, like I said, I like to think of it as kind of the trash pit. Uh, it was the name of a place outside of town where literally things were burned. And then, of course, when it comes yes. to the grave, probably the most extended um, uh, examination that I can think of was um, Solomon in uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, where he talked about nothing new under the sun, and there's all kinds of things, but basically it's all grasping at the wind, and ultimately we all end up in the same place, and, uh, you know, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So it's a um, death comes to all is one of the uh, the general subheadings that you see at the end of chapter 8. I saw the wicked buried, and uh, those who had come and gone from the place of set-apart holiness, they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This, too, is vanity. And the wicked and uh, the... Uh, uh, so, essentially, there is a lot that's written about it, but um, not much, honestly, that, uh, that tends to buttress or support the popular understanding, especially when it comes to the little guy with a pitchfork poking people as they come down into the, uh, the nether place where the rocks are all hot and uh, you got no place to sit. Yeah, um, Mark, and, I, and I'd add to that that this notion, a uh, couple of thoughts, actually, that this uh, notion of, uh, of Gehenna or Gehinnom uh, uh, being uh, the, the, the trash pit of Jerusalem, which it was, historically, they've, they found that that was true. The whole, it was also the area, that I understand, where the, uh, 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 the great bronze statue of Baal, had been erected and where the children were sacrificed was down in Gehinnom. Uh, and of course they were burned. So all of that gives us this notion of where perhaps the Catholic Church and perhaps where Dante got their background information on maybe what, what they were calling the inferno like. Uh, I think maybe they brought some, uh, kind of, uh, 
uh, images along with them and, and all of that. Interestingly, we find in, uh, in the book of Revelation, Abaddon is referenced several times. That's the Greek word for Hades, Abaddon. Hades and, uh, and Sheol are very similar concepts, uh, uh of being a, a place where those that are departed go. Uh, and, uh, and I think if I'm understanding the concept correctly, I know that there is some Jewish debate about this as to whether there's any, uh, predetermination of whether you were a lousy person or a great person here on earth that you, <laughs> that things are substantially different for you in that spot. But we're all awaiting the resurrection. We're all awaiting that time when we will be brought before the ruler of the universe and the books will be opened and things will be weighed. That's what we're told that. And do we have, I, I think probably it's a very correct thing to say that the, uh, uh, uh those that are there are, uh, uh, to kind of, uh, uh, combat spiritism. The notion that the dead have uh, an idea of what we're doing here on earth and all of that, and that they can somehow influence events here on earth and all of that, I ain't buying that, uh, to be real honest with you. Uh, I think that one of the great things that we can see is uh, when Saul goes to the Witch of Endor. Exactly, yep. and And has her, uh, yeah, and has her bring up Saul from, or uh, Samuel from Sheol. And, she, and Samuel is ticked. Yep. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Not happy he's about like, that. why have you disturbed my rest? And he describes it, I believe, and I'm not, I don't have my Bible pulled up to, to that verse. But, but he, he, in essence, why have you, I, I was resting here and waiting. Why have you disturbed me? What are you doing? What are you thinking? Yeah. So I think there are some, we see that there's, some stuff to this. I know that especially when as we're sitting in a funeral or something, it's awfully comforting to hear the person that's giving the eulogy say, yeah, and you know, grandma is, she's looking down on us and you know, grandma, and she's in heaven now and she's sitting right next to Jesus right now and this and that and the other thing. Now, I'm my pay grade isn't high enough to say that that isn't correct, but I don't think it is. Uh, and it's it's something that gives folks great comfort to think, oh, they've immediately been judged, and that's where they are right now. No more pain, no more suffering. Everything's good for them. I, I, I pray and hope that, that that there's a measure of truth in that, but I, I'm not sure that scripturally we, we, we see that. Um, you know, there's, uh, of course, in Luke, uh, we, we read about uh, Abraham and remember Lazarus. And, and the whole parable that was given about Lazarus and, and, and all of that. So I, th- I think there's some place they go. I, I, I don't. I, and I'll, I'll turn it over to you all. I've talked too long. Okay. Well, um, I had one quick comment I was going to add, and now I've uh, now I've lost it there with the uh, the Lazarus uh, comment. Um, oh, it'll come to me. Go ahead, Mark. Okay, um, so I'm jumping on uh, verses 10 to 14 here. Um, Stone, uh, Stone Stanach say they oh, before, will Wait, we don't have anything you want to add before we move on? on? On that? On the hell thing? I'm sorry? You don't have anything you want to add on the hell thing before we move on? 
Oh, <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> okay. Well, then go ahead. No, I don't. <laughs> yeah, there's there's going to be some place where we're going to go if we're not going to heaven. Okay, if we're not oh, going to go be Oh, that's what I was going to add. Thank you. Um, At and, the whole point you know, of heaven. The, the grave is... Uh, there's honestly, I, I, we didn't mention that, but the, uh, the, uh, the whole idea of going, you know, you die and go to heaven, you get your little harp at the pearly gates, St. Peter's there. I, I don't know that that is necessarily, um, demonstrable from the scripture either. Oh, no. No, it's, it's not. That's, uh, that's a, a, a thing that, uh, cartoonists made so kids wouldn't be too frightened, you know, because somebody that they knew died. You know, it's, 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 that's what that's what we uh, we saw when I was growing up uh, and watching cartoons when I was a kid. You know, the guy dies and he goes he goes to to you know he floats up to some nice place, and that's about that. Okay, I I, I think that does uh, doesn't do a whole lot of good for anybody to have that as the basis for their thinking for. 14 or 15 years, you know, until they finally go, hey, you know what, that, that's not probably true, you know. That's what I got there. Okay, uh, Ray, I guess yeah, we, uh, we opened the new we, can there. You got anything pass, you want to add? When we pass, we pass. We doubled there a second. Go ahead, uh, uh, Ray, if you do, if you want. Oh, I, I at this point I I read my quote and kind of made my made my point. I'm I'm in agreement with MP on on a lot of that stuff. I guess part of just bringing that out was to have people think about the fact of of to maybe re-examine what it is what it is they they think about that. What's said in Scripture about Sheol? What's said about Gehenna? What's said about uh, Abaddon and and of course Apollyon was the one that ruled uh, uh, the Greek god Apollo, the one right. that ruled that area. The they might want to also look up Hades, which is the Greek concept of of the the netherworld, the the place that we go. Uh, again, my my comment there is is in in Revelation and other places we read that there will be a time when the dead are raised. And that they will be, they will, there will be an accounting that, that happens. And I, th- at that point in time, I think the, the die is, we, we cast the die. I think there's an opportunity for us to make our final plea as well. Um, and we, we either get to spend eternity with Messiah in his presence, or we get to spend the eternity outside his presence, which I think is probably abject nothingness, but, that's above my pay grade. That's my thinking exactly. <laughs> so, anyway, you know, we we will be rewarded or we will be punished, and the punishment will be annihilation. The, yeah. Uh, the I, I cannot believe that a that a, a loving God would create some place that you're going to burn for eternity and not be burned up. I mean, it just, that that goes completely against. Uh, Yah's character, absolutely against it. You know, you, so yeah, it's, for, it's, you know, you very... seventy years. You didn't, you didn't accept my my son as your Messiah. So you get to burn for eternity. That's silliness. 
It's just silliness. You know. So, so as far as I'm concerned, we can we can go on, MP, if you're if you're yep. ready. Uh, are you, Mark? Yeah, let's go. Okay, let's continue then, and we will uh, we'll read. And this is going to also, uh, I think, probably uh, open some similar cans. Um, verse twelve of chapter fourteen: How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer! And by the way, usually when that word appears, it's Hashemayim. It's the heavens, plural. That's always one of my little pet peeves. It's from the Hashemayim, the heavens. Oh, Lucifer, son of the morning. Right. And um, the uh, the notes say uh, that that word there, his uh, proper name is translated as Daystar. How you're cut down to the ground, mm-hmm. you who weakened the goyim, the nations. For you said in your heart, and here come the I wills that are kind of a parallel to what we see in, I believe it's the book of Exodus. I will ascend into Hashemayim, the heavens. I will exalt my throne above the stars of Elohim. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. That echoes the uh, big lie we see first in Scripture. You can be like God, so will he. Uh, Yet you shall be brought down to this other word, Sheol, the grave, to the lowest depths of the pit. That one's interesting. I got I had that pulled up a second ago. Uh, the word for the pit. But um, without, I'll pause and we'll go. Uh, we'll go to. Uh, we'll go to Ray first this time. Uh, okay. I I, th- I think we we cut Mark out of the loop there. But uh, oh. uh, uh, go, ahead. go ahead if you want. Then we can go that way too. I'm not. I've got a. I've got. A, I got a lot more words put out on on TTRT than you have. So. Go ahead. Catch up. <laughs> uh, just a couple of comments. Yeah. The uh, again, my uh, how you have fallen from the heavens. O day star. Hallel. Uh, uh, son of the dawn uh, and and all of that. This is commonly. Uh, this, 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 See, we did it to you. We put you at the break. So we'll have to come back. And I pray. Don't take me soon, cause I am here for a reason. Sometimes in my tears I drown, but I never let it get me down. So when negativity surrounds, I know someday the lost turn around because
All right, we are back, folks. Last segment right. of the, uh, the Torah Teachers Roundtable for today. And I was going to go back to Ray, but it looks like during the break he agreed with MP that uh, he'd just punt and uh, let Mark pick it up and uh, and go first. So uh, I know we cut him off, but we'll uh, we'll go ahead and go with that and uh, and let Mark pick it up rather than uh, than going back to Ray. All right. We've uh, we've read how far? Have we read to the end of the chapter yet? No, we read to the part about no. Lucifer, no. oh, uh, okay. oh, son of the morning, and uh, a little bit into about verse 15. Okay, all right. Well, I'm going to cover 10 through 12 here. Uh, Stone Stock reads this way. Um, they will all proclaim and say to you, you also have been stricken as we were. You are compared to us, brought down to the netherworld where you're prided, where you're prided the tumult of your stringed instruments, maggots are spread out under you, and worms are your covers. Okay? The KJV says something very similar. Anyway, uh, I think that Hasatan uh, was truly worried about his own power to keep the band together under his leadership. All the more junior generals of armies and their and their armies are looking at Hasatan as if they were ready to overthrow him. Nebuchadnezzar is is right here handy to lead the revolt against Yah himself that it seems Hasatan isn't really ready to lead and thereby get his butt kicked by Yah again. And if you think he won't, think again. Nebuchadnezzar would would quite literally have his troops storm the gates of heaven against his creator and his righteous angels. Notice I said his troops, not he, would storm the gates of heaven. He might be crazy, but he's not stupid. He will live live to fight another day, though he might not get down and dirty on the actual field of fire. He thinks... Who will lead my troops if I die? My juniors need me. What? Just send another battalion over. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't so brilliant a general as an unthinking, unfeeling animal. He did conquer the entire Middle East, but at what cost? Men to the seventh or eighth power to the meat grinder. That's how. Zelensky of Ukraine seems to me a reincarnation of Nebuchadnezzar's spirit. The military-aged males of Ukraine are now virtually non-existent. Zelensky may be channeling Nebuchadnezzar's spirit, quite literally. I wonder if Zelensky has any remorse at starting this ridiculously stupid war with Russia. I doubt He's it. He's useless, except as a destroyer of an entire civilization, like Nebuchadnezzar was. In verse 12, I think I see Nebuchadnezzar's spirit attempting to overthrow the overthrow of Hasatan, that is Zelensky against Putin. <laughs> it, it looks like it might be the same. He won't be successful, but you do have to admire his guts. Like some U.S. troops said about Patton, blood and guts. Yeah, our blood, his guts. <laughs> That's what I got through verse 12. Military leaders are not, are, are not usually really, really good guys. However, they are really ruthless in, in how they conduct their battles. So, 
that's how that goes. Okay, uh, Ray, do you, you have anything you want to add on that score? Or you want to continue with the uh, the the, the Hasatan commentary? Um. <laughs> Okay, I, I we're we're that kind of bumping nice. bumping and clicking. I thought we were going to go on to thirteen and fourteen. Uh, yeah, I thought we were too. Uh, <laughs> uh, Mark, are you ready to do that or not? Um, I I can I can move a little further on. Sure. Um, okay. Okay. Verse verse thirteen has Hasatan saying. I will go right up to Yah's throne room, carrying my own throne with me to set it up after I demolish him and his. I will let my own throne, set my own throne rather, in its, his throne's place. And then I will rule with a rod of iron forever, as Rob Miller would say. But Yah, here's Azamra's comment on verse 13. And you said in your heart, I shall ascend to the heavens. I shall sit on the mount of the assembly on the flanks of the north. Verse 13. The mount of the assembly alludes to the temple mount, Israel's meeting place on the pilgrims, uh, pilgrim festivals. The choicest part of Azarah, central temple courtyard, was the north, where the Holy of Holies sacrifices had to be slaughtered. It was because Nebuchadnezzar dared to set his hand against Elohim's temple, that he came to such an ignominious end. Okay, that's Azamra. Now here's me. Where is the sanctuary in the Millennial Temple? Okay, um, uh, we sent, we went over this a couple of months ago in our discussion of Yechezkel. The altar of burnt offering, according to Stone's Tanakh's diagram of it, is facing north and the offering priest would approach it, not without an offering, on the ramp from the south. No one will ever be foolish enough to walk up that ramp without an offering in hand, and there are a lot of priests working on providing the sacrifices in the numerous chambers near the corners of the inner courtyard, where the uh, sacrificial offerings were slaughtered and prepared for the offering, the official offering by the Kohen Gadol, I think, as he approaches the ramp from the north, or south rather. Now verse 13 speaks in the, of in the sides of the north. And that intrudes, ver, uh, includes rather verse 14's quote of Lucifer as Yah began to quote him in verse 12. How art thou fallen, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of Elohim. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Fortunately, he's full of something that stinks to high heaven and has no idea what he's actually talking about. He's boasting about his plans that he knew before he had even thought of them, that they were just his pride and arrogance talking, with no clue about how he was going to displace his creator. He knew that he didn't have a snowball's chance of getting away, uh, or any of it, to come to pass. 
but he was smarter than the average human and actually got most of them to believe that he was the smartest and most powerful being in existence. And by the way, the heights of the clouds is not really all that high. I have to think just from that, that he'd never actually been outside the Earth's Fulcandrian atmosphere, uh, not even to Paralandra or Malacandra. I'm quoting from C.S. Lewis, okay? Earth, that is Fulcandra's nearest neighbors. By the way, unless he's hitched a ride on the NASA mission, Hasatan has never left the <clears throat> Earth's atmosphere. He's Earth-bound. That must really tick him off. Anyway, that's what I got through verse 14. Okay. Uh, Ray? Uh, just just a little bit of uh, a little bit to add to that uh, slightly off topic but I but I agree with MP on this there's this kind of notion of the north being the area uh, being the, the 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 direction heavens in if you will uh, and all that and it uh, one of the ways that it goes back is uh, through Canaanite mythology. Uh, in Canaanite mythology, actually, there was, in fact, also a revolt in heaven. Uh, uh, and uh, there was a reference to the morning star, Hillel, uh, and, and all that uh, and all that as well. So that's interesting that that makes that there's an allusion made to that perhaps here. Uh, you'll recall, I, I think, that up on what we now call Mount Hermon, was in the uh, in the days of the Canaanites was Mount Zaphon, and uh, it's uh, in the north of, uh, of that of that area, and that was where where the Canaanite deities, uh, in fact, uh, the, it was their Mount Olympus, if you will, and uh, very similar concept. And so this this whole notion of uh, to the north and sitting upon you know, the mountaintops and being as high as the clouds and all that. This is this is an allusion back to uh, uh, to I, th I think this Canaanite mythology from from whom I'm trying to remember. I, I just can't remember the name of the male Canaanite deity who uh, spawned uh, through Ishtar, a son who the Canaanites knew as Baal. But uh, I, I'm, I'm, I've lost his name oh, in my mind, memory. But uh, anyway, again, I think we've got some allusions to to some of that here in 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 scripture as well. But I think paints a picture that everybody at the time understood. Okay. Um. We've got about 10 minutes left. I guess it, it, it strikes me that there's probably something else about this that we need to, uh, that we need to comment on. Just because there are so few references in the whole book to this name of, uh, of Lucifer. And this is one of probably three or four places in scripture where we will see this reference to him. And yet there is so much written about it and so many things. Now the word Hasatan, the adversary, uh, appears in, uh, not just, uh, in the form of a, uh, a proper noun as is the uh, the article adjective the adjective uh, the adversary but uh, but Lucifer doesn't appear all that many times so um, it comes from the Latin it comes from the Latin Bible from the Vulgate yes. Lucifer which yes, means light bearer yeah, yeah it, it's not in it's not in the Hebrew Bible 
Oh, well, that's true. And uh, let me think of that. What is um, uh, you're right. That's a good point. And I had forgotten that because I'm looking at a, ber- a version that includes it here. Let me see if I can't pull up the other reference. So what is it, um, Ray, in the, in the original Hebrew in, uh, in Isaiah? Do you have it sitting there offhand? Uh, what verse is it? Again? That's um, verse um, 12, 1412. 12. It's mine, mine says, uh, and this is English Standard, it says, how you are fallen from heaven, O D star. And star is uh, uh, Hebrew 1966, It means from the base meaning shining one. This refers to an object in the night sky, often retranslated as the morning star, and possibly referring to the planet Venus. Venus, There we go. Uh, Used as a title for the king of Babylon. The Latin Lucifer also means shining one and has become a title of Satan due to a traditional equation of the king of Babylon with the devil. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a my, good point. And I knew there was something I was forgetting, and that's it. So I appreciate you pointing that out. Um, because you're right, it is Hillel, and it's rendered as, um, and it's not the same Hillel that we see, uh, you know, the, the rabbi's name, but I suspect there may even be some connection there. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's actually Hillel. There um, you go. The, the, the Hebrew there. Um, and yeah, it's uh, it, it, in the sense of brightness. It's uh, it comes from halal, which is the uh, the uh, Hebrew root word. Let me look that up real quick, like here. Okay, while you're well, doing well, that, well, I will make a note well, that I, I did finally get it to me... come up. My computer's a bit slow, but uh, the reference also is to uh, the proper name of the king of Babylon, Hillel. Yes. So that yes. certainly fits in the context uh, that we've been talking about. Yeah. The, the Hebrew word, the Hebrew root word halal means to radiate. Okay. Praising, shining, boasting, being hypocritical. I mean, there's a whole lot of different ways that this is translated in the scriptures. But being hypocritical, revealing God's presence. I mean, the, the, there are so many different ways that, that this thing is used. Um, it, the idea of it being Hasatan, um, that's what he does. He, he radiates this evil, is basically what it is. The way, I, in exactly the same way that Yah radiates um, perfection. And, and I guess just to, to, to kind of draw these connections, uh, there are so many things, and, and this is a good example of one of those, where we, we see a word, and without necessarily going back and looking it up and realizing, no, that's, that's not even the proper name. They put a proper name in the English Bibles that comes from the Latin, but it is not in the original Hebrew. And that, uh, that ought to at least be exactly. kind of an indicator yeah. to us. Um. One thing I, I might also, I think one of the the ways that this inference is drawn together is as we look back in Genesis and we see uh, uh, Hasatan pictured there as a Nachash, a shining one. Yeah. The serpent, the name for a serpent is Nachash. Yep. And that also we we know from Scripture that he was a a a cherub, a cherub, one right. of the cherubim. In fact, the the most exalted one who brought praise to Yah in in his heavenly throne room, 
and all of that. And so then from that keruv also we have this notion of shining brass, the burning one, a seraph, seraph I mean, uh, with that. So the, there's this quality about him that he's shining, he's burning, he's beautiful to look at, uh, all this sort of stuff. That imagery fits this description very, very, very well. And I think it's one of the reasons that that folks look at these verses uh, verses in Isaiah and think, oh, this re- th- these verses here refer to Satan. And they, they well could. Uh, but also the context here is, well, this is, this is the king of Babylon, who is also, uh, as MP has pointed out, uh, the, uh, a physical, yet another physical incarnation of him being at work on the earth. Exactly. exactly. Well, and, and you make a good point, Ray. It, it, it reminded me of a couple other things. And uh, again, I appreciate that because these were things that I had hoped we would we would get around to in the discussion here. Nakash is one of those interesting words. I, I like it a lot better than the snake or the serpent even because I have this uh, kind of a sneaking suspicion it grows mm-hmm. over time that Nakash is a word for some kind of a lizardy-like creature, maybe even a dragon. And we just don't have this anymore because remember, Nakash it seemed that he walked erect. And it wasn't until after Genesis 3 that he gets told, you're going to be crawling around on your belly from here on out, dude. And so something changed with Nakash. The word does appear in a number of places, though, including the serpent on a stick that we see at the time of Moshe when there were all the the snakes that were biting people uh, there in the uh, Bamidbar, in the wilderness. So a number of connections. And, of course, then the idea was take this serpent, put it up on a stick, make it out of brass. So brass is what? Shiny and coppery colored. And all of those illusions, you mentioned the giraffe, they all kind of have this this common connection that goes back uh, to this idea of a shining one or somebody that's just too impressed uh, for their own good uh, with their own beauty and their own image. And uh, that at least comes through in any number of the ways this is translated. Well, and, and if, you, if you think of it, if you put, put yourself in, in uh, Adam and Eve's place in the garden, that um, uh, who's, who's, who's going to take uh, the advice of a snake? Um, <laughs> I mean... If he talks, I, I it's think, a little easier. Uh, what, what we see, what we see there is that this beautiful entity appears to her and, and to Adam, who's standing right by, and and he is radiant in his beauty and beautiful in the way that he conducts himself and talks and all this other stuff. And you're right, Mark. It isn't until after the deed is done that his appearance is changed or perhaps revealed or whatever the story is. I think. He's able to hoodwink them very easily because of the beautiful his beautiful appearance. Hmm. Yeah. No. The that word nachash uh, that is uh, the the literal translation of that is to conjure or to advance to a future to the, to the future through magic. Oh. Okay? And, and and that's from the etymological dictionary of biblical Hebrew again. The, oh, that's wonderful! I've never heard that. Def- that that makes so much sense. Yeah, but I tend to think, guys, that that was a later understanding. That it was uh, it was a word that was, um, in other words, the the word makash described this thing, and then that same attributes were later applied to these other words because of the similarities. So you know, the question is which is the cart and which is the horse. But I can't help but think that this uh, proper noun. 
uh, not a proper noun, but a, a noun that described this this character that was there in Genesis 3 um, probably precedes the other ones. I, I could be wrong, as Mark likes to say. I, yeah. I think that's a pretty good guess. But I doubt it. That's what I always say. Yeah, yeah, I was trying to avoid that. <laughs> Uh, okay. So well, more and fun, by the way, though, Mark. <laughs> one last thing. The the the, the section here. I, I, ends, I think it's interesting. Guess, also, go ahead, Ray. Go on, Mark. Go on, Mark. Go uh, on. I was just going to say the section that we read through ends with verse fifteen, where it's describing all of his "I will" statements in contrast to the "I will" of the Creator. But yet it says, "You will be brought down to Sheol, to the grave, to the lowest depths of." And here is the word "the pit," which is "bore," and that's kind of fascinating. That word isn't used a lot, but in fact, the place we see it first is in Genesis thirty-seven, a story that the annual Torah portion just looked at here recently, where poor old Joseph gets thrown into uh, the boar, Habor, by his brothers, the pit. Oh, yes. And uh, there's no water in it, and he was sold out of the pit and so forth. So literally most of the references to the uh, the word pit are there. And not only that, later, this is something I hadn't even noticed until I was looking it up for this show, um, when Pharaoh eventually calls for Joseph, and he's, uh, uh, where is he? Well, the word in English is the dungeon. He's put in the dungeon. But guess what? In Hebrew, it's the same word. They threw him in the pit. And so when Pharaoh called for Joseph, that's where he was again. Right. So his brothers threw him in the pit. And so after the, the incident with um, the captain of the guard, Potiphar, he's back in the pit, the dungeon. And that's where, in fact, uh, this uh, this shining yes, so bright we're, one, we're, Nakash, Seraph, um, whatever he is, uh, he ends up in the pit too. Uh, go ahead. Was that you, Mark? Well, an interesting, and it doesn't match the dis- description of the inferno exactly just that's yeah it, it doesn't match it. it it's 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 a holding area it's it's something it's something else but it's it's not uh it's it's not with the flaming rocks and the and the fire and the smoke and the hey 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 you know i mean it's so anyway yeah all right well we are up exactly. to about and, and Go ahead, Mark. we're when we die we're going to be buried Okay, or or cremated. I'm going to be buried. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> the uh, the 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 point is that we're going to go into some place where we're nothing. I mean, really and truly, we're gonna we're gonna take up some space. Maybe I will get cremated just so I don't take up all that space. Let's okay. Else well, hey, it. we are well, guys. It we're at the end of the show, so what we're going to do is we're going to go to the um, we're going to go to the music momentarily. But I guess just uh, one quick thought: uh, if there's anything we take away from this, it's that we need to pay attention and take a look at some of the words that are used that we've had so many things described to that may not be what we thought. Hey, thanks. Come on, folks.